The China and Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Witt University in Johannesburg. The ACRP promotes balanced, considered reporting on Africa-China relations through innovative training programs held throughout the year. More information at africachinareporting.co.za. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, one of the themes over the past year of all the Africa summits that we've had, there's been summits in the UK, in France, in let's see, Turkey, uh, Russia, Japan, there's been the US, uh, Prosper Africa, and all of these discussions, it's moved away from the traditional aid model, where the idea is we're gonna give Africa a lot of money, we're gonna bring in all of these experts from the World Bank or the IMF or USAID. Now people are talking about public-private partnerships. And it's interesting because while they believe that as a development model, there's also a very, I think, a hidden agenda here in the sense, actually, let me rephrase that, it's not very hidden, as a contrast to what the Chinese are doing. So the Chinese are often put out as a state-led development model. And then now these other countries are proposing to do public-private partnerships to say our private sector is going to take the lead or be an active participant in Africa's aid. The funny thing about all of this is that the Chinese have been involved in public-private partnerships for quite some time, although most people don't really seem to know much about what they're doing. Yeah, it's it's very interesting to see how these kind of discourses change. Um, you know, it, I think agriculture we, is, is a particularly great example of, of how this Chinese version of public-private partnership works, where it's it's both a, you know a government-funded and government-supported uh, aid project, but it also involves commercial companies who are involved in developing products or developing ways of, of, of doing agriculture in, in Africa in conjunction with local communities. So it's a very interesting model. Well, we're going to take a look today at a partnership in Mozambique to try to get a better understanding of what the challenges are to building a successful Chinese agricultural partnership in Mozambique and try to get some sense of what's happening in the agricultural sector, as Kobus mentioned. Uh, so we're thrilled to have back on the program Lu Xinqing, who is an associate program officer at the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa. She's based out of Nairobi. Welcome back to the show, Xinqing. Hi, hello both. Yes, uh, very, very thrilled to be back on the show. Well, you wrote an article for us a, a couple of weeks ago, and it's on our site at ChinaAfricaProject.com, entitled What It Takes to Build a Successful Chinese Agricultural Partnership in Mozambique. And in this article, we asked you to kind of lay out what were some of the obstacles and what were some of the opportunities that kind of came out about this. And it was interesting for me because so much of what you wrote about mirrored the experiences that I've seen with U.S. and European public-private partnerships. There really wasn't that much different in it. I do invite everybody to go onto our website and check it out. I'll put the link in our show notes. Uh, but before we get started into the details of what you were doing in Mozambique, why don't you give us just an introduction to, uh, to the program, to the initiative, who were some of the actors and the players and what your role was in it? Yeah, sure. Um, it is very innovative and a very rewarding uh, model experience for me also for the past two years. 
So this is a project we started about two years ago in Mozambique, in the northern part in Zambezia province. Um, the key players here is public-private partnerships. So that includes, of course, Mozambique government, NGOs like AGRA, Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa. It also has big players like World Bank. And most importantly, a Chinese private company. It's actually a not state-led company. It's a private company that produces and processes rice from Hubei province, from China. So the idea is actually very straightforward. It's called in Chinese 公司加农户, basically means company plus farmers. So what they do is there is a private company as the in the core of this mechanism. The company provides necessary farmer inputs, for example, um, uh, uh, for example seed, fertilizer, pesticide, mechanization service, they also transfer technologies like how to grow rice, how to, for example, broadcast seed, and then how to use these machineries, these technologies to the local farmers. And then once the farmer grow and harvest the rice, paddy rice as an output, then the company will guarantee a fixed price and then purchase back these paddy rice from the farmers. So in a sense, there's no risk for the farmers because they were given these um, farm inputs in the beginning as a credit, and in the end, they can sell their paddy rice as an output to the market at a fixed price, and then the cost will be deducted from the final, the final output. So this is the general um, model that has been used in China for years. And now what's interesting is we are introducing this model to Mozambique, working with a Chinese company and Mozambican local farmers. So in this arrangement, um, Mozambique government, of course, plays a very important role in coordinating the farmers, providing enabling environments like financing and policies. World Bank plays a role in terms of irrigation. Um, they actually had a big project and built a lot of irrigation schemes in many, in many provinces in Mozambique. And AGRA's role is we provide some funding um, in, the, in the form of grant money for the Chinese company to conduct necessary trainings like um, business planning training and machinery service training to the farmers. Um, and what is the scale of the project? Um, like how many farmers are involved? Yeah, so this is the second year of the project. We are scaling up gradually. So in the first year, we have about 80 hectares involving 30 households. Now this year, we're expanding to about 160, 165 hectares and then about 50, 50 farmers, 50 households. So in your article, you mapped out four obstacles that were instructive in terms of what had to be overcome in terms of the challenges faced, not just by the Chinese, but by all actors in the public-private partnership. Let's walk through these pretty quickly, uh, because I think it's very interesting to see some of the obstacles. So number one was language and culture. Now, this is really very obvious, because you have people from China, you have Westerners who are part of the World Bank, you had obviously the Mozambican uh, from Zambezi, but also, uh, you know, speaking Portuguese and local dialect. So talk to us a little bit about some of the language and cultural barriers that were, that were faced and, and how they were overcome. Yeah, this for me is the most important, um, most obvious challenge, but it's actually the biggest challenge. So um, you said this is similar to a lot of Western projects, but in the language issue, I'd say Chinese is particularly difficult for Chinese. 
because uh, most of them still cannot speak English very well. Uh, just give you a one very vivid example. I remember in this one workshop, we had the first workshop when we signed the farmer contract, farming contract with these farmers. Basically, we need to explain to them how does the cost and revenue and the fixed price work, all of that. Then in this in this meeting, we have, as you said, as you mentioned, four different languages, and every sentence has to be translated, like from Chinese to English to English from English to Mozambican, to sorry to Portuguese, and then local language. So first is the time efficiency, and second, um, as the the movie suggests, it's a lot of things lost in translation. I don't know how much substance were were lost. Uh, from Portuguese to local language, for example. And then, actually, it's not only about language, it's more about this culture difference and the mistrust. Um, I remember reading this book from Trevor Noah, one of my, my favorite authors, and he talks about when you speak the same language, then you feel kind of you belong to each other and you, it's, it, you, you are the same kind of people. But then once you hear a different language, immediately you feel alienated and estranged from, from that people. So this is how I feel in this, in this workshop. Like a Chinese, uh, the businessman, the CEO from the Chinese company would be talking and he made a joke, which is hilarious for me, but no one gets it. And then it can't, it can't be even translated. So there's a lot of rhetoric. There's a lot of beautiful, um, like goodwill that's being lost in, in the translation. So what did you do to overcome that? What was the solution? That's a very difficult problem. And I'll, and I'll say that as somebody who's worked in non-English language environments now for the better part of 20 years in Congo, Vietnam, China, all over, uh, I know firsthand how difficult this can be, but I'm curious to hear what you guys did to solve the problem and in order to facilitate communication. Yeah, I think... We don't. We haven't even really solved these problems, but of course we are trying. Maybe two solutions. One is we really f uh, insisted on translating to the local language, because I, I remember at this meeting I mentioned some people suggested we should only translate to Portuguese, so we can save some time by only translating three into three languages. But the the key is the farmers are the core, the participants in this project. So we have to make sure that the farmers understood whatever we were saying and they understood um, how much they are gonna earn from this project. So this is one thing. We have to be very um, adamant on this point. We have to translate to the local language. The second thing I found um, very helpful is we, in the end, we, we established a WeChat group so the a lot of the local actually Mozambican government like on the on provincial level they also registered an account on WeChat so then we formed WeChat and you know there's a nice function on WeChat which is you can translate um, by just you know clicking on the message so this helps a lot when we speak um, English, Portuguese, Chinese, then we can all discuss in the WeChat group and reflect, update, solve, um, solve problems. Um, a, a second um, problem that you mentioned was a very interesting one for me, which is that this community in Mozambique had already dealt with several other development projects before this development project came along. Like, What were some of the challenges that you encountered because of previous development agencies working there? 
Yeah, so there's、um, the biggest challenge I noticed. I mentioned in the article is that a lot of previous donor-supported projects are giving out inputs,、uh, the seed fertilizer, for free to the farmers. So this actually created an, a, a false expectation and impression from the farmers that inputs should be given as free by the donors because you have money, right? But actually, in our project, this is exactly what we don't want to do because we want to. This is a real public-private partnership, and this has to be making business sense for the Chinese company. So what they what we do is the farmers should be paying for their own input. They can be given as a credit, but has to be deducted from the from the output in the end. But this is difficult for us. To to do because farmers are so、um, let me use this word spoiled by donor supported projects and then it's difficult for them to understand the business model under our project. So this is the first one and the second one I haven't really、um, mentioned in this project is there's also a a kind of mistrust towards the the donor supported project. Somehow there were. Uh, I think one or two projects in the same area working on the same farmers that had failed, not failed, but not really succeeded, and then the project ended. They pulled off and then left. So this created a, I don't know, a trauma or the mistrust among these farmers. Like all、oh, these projects, they always come and work for two years and then they left, they leave. So this really touches the issue of sustainability, and this is why we introduce. Um, private sector business because they are more sustainable. If this makes sense for the company, it will stay there and grow and expand. It's not like instead of、um, a donor-supported project which ends after three years. Yeah, that's been my experience as well、uh, here in Southeast Asia and also in Africa, where there's a lot of skepticism of the aid groups because they they'll say to you, locals, you know, the foreigners they come but they always leave. And and it's this idea because funding cycles are on two years. Maybe it's harder, and they don't reach their KPIs and their targets. So therefore, they they have to pull out. There's new programs that come along. It, it just priorities shift and whatnot, or budgets get constricted and things like that. So it is something that、uh, that creates a lot of credibility issues. So here, once again, I'll ask you the same question: How did you overcome that? So you have a trust problem, and then you have an added trust problem in the fact that you're Chinese. And these the the company was Chinese, and in Mozambique, I I presume as in other parts of Africa, people may be more accustomed to dealing with the World Bank or with Europeans and Americans, but they're not necessarily used to dealing with the Chinese. So on top of having that skepticism of well, foreigners come and foreigners go, then there's a new category of foreigners there. Talk to us a little bit about how you overcame this this challenge on the、uh, on on the donor supported projects. Yeah, that's、um, difficult for us. We're also learning along the process. I think one thing is you really need to get buy-in from the local farmer、uh, farmer leaders and the local provincial, even district level agriculture department from the government. And for example, we work with the farmer association, what we call FA farmer association, and then through them we get to. It's it's a bit like Chinese model, you know. Deng Xiaoping said, "Let some people get rich first, and other people will 
um, will get envious and they will also work harder. So it's kind of seeing and believing model. So we work with the farmer association members. Once they tasted the benefit of this project, then it's, it's the, the seeing and believing other people will follow. So this is one. And second, the criteria that we choose we chose this particular Chinese company is that this company has actually been operating in Mozambique for years, for five years, but in a different area. So um, we want to bring this company to Zambezia province where World Bank and Agra and the local government all have an interest, an interest to develop. So that's to say that the company has already experienced dealing with uh, local conditions, they have experienced growing rice um, in Mozambique. So it's a guarantee to us that the company is not leaving Mozambique, even if our project didn't uh, even if our project didn't achieve our KPI in the first year, but the company will stay and this is a big like builds confidence in, um, in the partners, in the local governments and the farmers. And what you mentioned in the article also is that one of the challenges of the seeing is believing model is that, the, in, especially in agriculture, the results take so long to emerge. You know, so, so you have to really build trust not only with the community for a while, but you have to build it across several growing seasons, um, especially, which I think is especially challenging in the case of these kind of development projects, which frequently have, you know, one year, two year or three year funding windows. And then after that, you know, the, the funders frequently move on onto other projects. Um, how, how did you manage to, to actually maintain that kind of trust with the community over that long a time? Yes, patience is the key word here. Um, we, this project is for three years. So um, at least we have three agriculture cycle, like farming seasons to show the results. The second model that we always use for agriculture development projects is we have a small demo site. That is to say, we have the Chinese company with very skillful, like experienced rice technicians to grow rice on a small plot, for example, half a hectare or one hectare as a demo site. So in the demonstration site, the farmers, other farmers will see that by applying the right technology, by applying the right fertilizer pesticide, the rice yield can be um, increased from one ton per hectare to about six metric tons per hectare. So after seeing this for one season, the, the, like the maximum result they can achieve, this really encourage other farmers to follow exactly the instructions from the Chinese rice technicians. You know, you talked about the sense of time, and, and I'd like to spend a little time thinking about that because as a Chinese person who works in an international organization, you get to interact with people from different cultures but the Chinese have a very different sense of time than, say, Westerners do, particularly Americans. We come into a market and we're under the idea that I need to show quick results. We have to we have a plan. Let's move fast. And, uh, you know, the, the Facebook moniker of, you know, move fast and break things. Right. And in the aid world, that also is that same way where we have our two year funding plan. Everything has to show results within that plan, and particularly with groups that have metrics that show, you know, we have to give demonstrable progress. I find that the Chinese have a much longer time horizon for a lot of these, these projects. How does it work in, in, a, in an organization like this, these public-private partnerships that you're working in, to reconcile some of these differences in terms of time? Because in developing markets and emerging markets and frontier markets, like where I'm in in Vietnam and where you're in, in Mozambique and Kenya, it always takes longer than you think it's going to take. 
it never happens faster than you think it's going to take. <laughs> it nothing ever. Yeah, that's totally it not, true. Never happens faster. <laughs> How do you reconcile these expectations related to time? I think there are three, maybe three aspects to that. One is um, I mentioned this company is a Chinese, a private company, but actually, so the Chinese government and the aid project and the private sector is still quite intertwined in the Chinese context. So a lot of Chinese companies come to Africa not only for business profit, business case, but also there's a national strategy almost to Chinese government encourages Chinese company to go out um, and to go out and then expand, for example, global market. So this is one they actually have a, a sense of like echoing to the Chinese national strategy of going out. Second point is, I think that's exactly the reason why public sector get engaged in the project. If it's all make perfect sense, then the private sector should be flooding into Mozambique rice market, right? The reason why they're not here is exactly because it takes time, it has risks. That's why public sector like World Bank and Agra, we are providing incentives and we're de-risking the project for the Chinese company. So in this case, for example, World Bank has already invested in the irrigation, irrigation scheme. They also built like, all the pumps, um, some of the farm machinery road for the company so that the company has less uh, capital investment to put in in the beginning of the project. So it's a kind of de-risking. And the same goes to Agra, like we provide some grant money to, for, the farm, for the company to teach farmers uh, for some trainings. So that also gives more incentive for the, for the company to do this. And the third point, as I mentioned before, the company has been in Mozambique for five years. So it has experience of dealing with, um, with, dealing with this slow and, democrat uh, sorry, and the bureaucratic process. So it doesn't. It has an expectation of things going slow. I think that that helps in terms of like their expectation, setting the right expectation. Um, one of the challenges that we've seen a lot with Chinese and and other um, projects in Africa is that. You know, frequently they start off with cooperation and um, and buy-in from the federal or national government. Um, and then, you know, on the ground, they realize that there's actually a, a kind of a breakdown in communication between the national government and the local community, or in some cases, the national government and the local government. You know that you have to you have to build relationships both with the national government and the local government in in order to make to make things move forward. Um, how did you experience that issue in in this project? Yeah, this is I think the biggest lesson that Chinese companies learned throughout the years. As you said, um, in the early years, a lot of Chinese companies come and only negotiate or reach a deal a agreement with the national federal government. And then when they come, when they came to the local level, they were like, ah, oh, actually, they, there is uh, this connection between among the, the federal and local government, and they don't know what to do. So on this project, I have this, I remember the first time I went to Mozambique, we spent about one week and a half, like 10 days in Mozambique, and we literally started from the local, local level. So we went to the district, which is like 20 kilometers away from the, um, the capital city of Zambezia province, right? And then we started there, talked to the local farmers, talked to the district agriculture department, then uh, after four days, we went to a little bit higher. Then we went to Kilimani, which is the capital city of the province, provincial level. 
And then after two days meeting everyone in the provincial level, then we went to the national level. We went back to Maputo, the capital of um, capital of Mozambique, and then we met with the uh, national directorate and Ministry of Agriculture. So this is a process we have to take and start from the grassroots, start from the local, and bring their voice one step further and like higher to the national level. I think this is very important lesson for the further for the future development projects that you have to talk to the locals first before you even talk to the national governments. It's interesting because I'm looking through all four of your obstacles and the common theme among all four is the question of trust. If you build trust with people, you can do almost anything. And without any trust, you can't do anything. And so it was interesting because we posted your article on on my LinkedIn page, which has about 850,000 people uh, who follow. And so it gets a lot of feedback. And one of the themes in the comments came up was also this question of trust. Is this just a way for the Chinese government to take to do land grabs? We heard a lot about land grabs. Is this a form of colonialism? Uh, And it was a lot of skepticism that people had about the Chinese in particular. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about some of the trust issues that you had to do as Chinese stakeholders in all of this. And I know you don't represent the company, but you were obviously talking with the people from the company. Um, What were the trust challenges that had to be overcome? And what was your impression of seeing those comments on LinkedIn as well? Yes, I was just reading the LinkedIn comments before the this show and it's um, it's interesting a lot of people mentioned the keyword land grab uh, i believe this land grab was a term very a lot there were a lot of negative uh, reports on chinese agricultural projects in mozambique especially on the wanbao project i think uh, but as you also mentioned in in your comments there's already the, a debunk of this myth by deborah i believe on chinese companies land grab just yeah, to, so that was uh, Deborah Browdigan wrote a yeah. book of uh, who, uh, Will China Will Africa Feed China, and that book disproved the idea of Chinese land grabs. Deborah Browdigan, of course, is the famous scholar at the China Africa Research Initiative at Johns Hopkins University. Yes, um, and in our specified project, well, maybe I can clarify one thing: is that in this project, in the company plus farmer model. The land ownership has ne- will never be transferred. The land ownership is still belonging to the local farmers. What we're doing is simply providing input and necessary training technology to the farmers on their own land. So there should be no land problem in this, in this aspect. But I do think, as you said, there may be two sides of the story. One is there's a mistrust against Chinese in particular, and the second is as long as it's um, related to land issues, then it's sensitive. It's the same towards Chinese, towards other Westerns or white, let's call it, quote unquote, white people. So it's both Chinese and land issue. And Kobus, for you in South Africa, this is, I mean, I think there is no more sensitive issue right now than land and who owns the land. And this is the same case in many countries. This was the, the issue in Zimbabwe, in Zambia, certainly in Mozambique as well. And, and so how much of what you saw in the comments on LinkedIn talking about land grabs and the sensitivity surrounding land do you think was specific to the Chinese 
and how much of it is just because land in Africa is such an emotive issue because of the history? I think those two are woven together. Um, land is, uh, you know, is a particularly kind of painful issue in Africa because of the experience of colonialism, because of the experience of people being kicked off their land, um, and therefore then also losing their entire livelihood. You know, kind of. So this isn't this isn't you know kind of people people missing the land because they like gardening, for example, right? Kind of. This is this is missing the land because the land was the entire economic survival, um, and then they were destitute after that. Um, and so so it, it remains a very important issue. The whole of Africa, it's particularly fraught, I think, at the moment in Southern Africa. Um, South Africa and Zimbabwe are both, you know, kind of really in the midst of that of that issue. Um, and then, you know, it, it, it feeds into a kind of a mistrust um, between between local people, the, the national government, and then outside actors. You know, I think the national government and the, the the mistrust between local local communities and the national government is frequently an aspect here that's that's kind of not looked at enough, because you know it's because um, kind of for example when a local community protests against say a, a Chinese development initiative it's frequently then characterized um, especially by outside press as local community protests against the Chinese, whereas what's frequently the logic in that protest is that a local community is assumed that corrupt actors in the national government sold them out to some kind of some rapacious outside actor you know that there was there was collusion between the national government and the outside actor to to kick them off their land and so it reflects a feeling of powerlessness that local communities have in the face of the national government in Africa frequently this feeling that they don't represent you they're not your kind of people they'll sell you out at any moment they corrupt they, they're basically just there to, to to enrich themselves and then they'll get the money then from the outside actor which in this case is China. Um, the fact that China then is also is a kind of a new actor on the landscape and and less familiar to these communities than European actors then exacerbates that that problem. I think. Um, Xinjing, did did how how did your your relationship with the with the national government work in this in this um, project? Did you like you know you, you mentioned that they were a stakeholder, but like how how what were some of the challenges um, and the experience of the communication process with them? Yeah, so as I mentioned, um, we start so in the first consultation process. We started from the from the local level and then district, provincial, and then finally we talk to the national government. So when we talk to them, we actually represent the interests from the farmers and the like the voices from the local level. So this is one. And second, I think, um, just going back to the mistrust issue, this is a challenge for AGRA also, because AGRA is an African-oriented, African-centered organization. We have 200 employees, all of them are Africans apart from me. But then when we work with China, when we have this China-Africa cooperation program, we actually run a reputation risk for us when we are associated to Chinese companies. So especially in this project, World Bank and AGRA, we are engaged part of the reason is we want to like provide, we are vouching for this project, right? We, this project is backed by world-renowned uh, organizations like World Bank and Agra. So in this one, we are taking a reputational risk, but we really want to um, build, like, from, build a, a confidence and trust for, um, like, for the Chinese, Chinese company. 
just to wrap up our discussion here, how let us know how how representative this project is. It sounds great. I mean, the article really mapped out, and you did a great job at kind of walking us through the challenges and the opportunities. But is this a one-off, or are there more Chinese public-private partnerships that are out there? Is it something that's growing? Give us a sense of the trend related to Chinese public-private partnerships that you're seeing in the agricultural sector, not just in Mozambique, but maybe elsewhere in Africa as well. Yeah, to be honest, this is difficult. As honest, I as, as far as I know, this is maybe on the only one a very few public private sector uh, pu- public sector uh, pu- sorry public private partnerships in Africa in agriculture sector. Uh, one reason is this is uh, it's about rice, so a staple crop. Most of the Chinese companies, private companies, are more interested interested in cash crop because they are more profitable, for example, sesame or livestock or um, avocado, for example, horticulture. So in staple crop, uh, this is more about food security issues. This is more I- difficult for Chinese companies to have, uh, to be incentivized to, to invest. This is one. And second, to be honest, even with the de-risking from World Bank and from, from Agra, this project has been we have fa- we are faced with a lot of challenges, especially also from climate change. As we all know, last year there was this um, cyclone Idai that hit Mozambique, and several hundred people died. And it ex- actually happened in our project area in, in Zambezia. So we actually lost the most of the harvest from last year from uh, because of the cyclone Idai. So this is a uh, a hit for us, which means um, even with as I said, even with the de-risking of the capital investments, there's still a lot of risk uh, around weather, extreme weather patterns from the climate change. So I will say this is a difficult project, but we want to we want this project to be a, a proof of concept and to encourage more and more this type of partnerships happening in Africa. And then just one one question before before we end. Um, just a very basic question: like, where is that rice the 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 rice that was produced by this project? Where is it headed? Is it being is it being sold in African African markets or is it going overseas? It is sold to domestic market because um, it's actually uh, as we know, many countries in Africa are still importing rice or staple crop like maize from um, Southeastern Asian countries like Thailand. And because of the high cost of production, local production, the locally produced rice actually has no cost competitiveness compared to the the imported rice. So there's almost no way for us to export this rice produced in Mozambique to other countries. So we're trying to do is substitute importation and then sell this rice to domestic market. The article is What It Takes to Build a Successful Chinese Agricultural Partnership in Mozambique. It was written by Lu Xingting, who's an associate program officer at the Alliance for a Green Revolution in Africa. She joined us this morning from Nairobi. Thank you so much for taking the time and for writing the article and for sharing some of your insights. You comment quite a bit on some of the work you're doing at Agra on Twitter. Uh, what's your What's your name on Twitter so people can follow what you're reading and writing? And um, it's my name in Chinese, Lu Xingqing. Well, we will put a link to Xingqing's Twitter handle there. Uh, if for those of you following at home, it's L U X I N Q I N G. That's uh, that's the pinyin. So if you're <laughs> if you're fluent in pinyin, you'll have no problem. If you're not, we'll go ahead and put a link there. Uh, Xingqing, thank you so much for taking the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Mm-hmm.
Kobus, I'm going to come back to the point that I raised at the end of our discussion with Xinqing, that this is really all about trust. And that if you can build trust, you can do anything, public-private partnership, public-public partnership, any kind of partnership you want to do. But it does come down to trust. In order to build trust, you have to have language. And those language skills, I think, that she talked about uh, is absolutely critical. I know that from my time in China. I speak Chinese. I've been able to uh, build a level of trust that my colleagues who didn't speak Chinese weren't able to do. Just as she said, if you can speak the language, you can understand the subtleties and the nuances in the culture. So I thought that was really very interesting. But on this question of trust, and I'd like to get your take on this, the Chinese sometimes have a difficulty in in, in the idea that, well, if there's mistrust in one part of the relationship, that shouldn't bleed into other parts. So the idea that people don't trust the Chinese in Africa for a number of different reasons. Uh, so, for example, counterfeit products are a big problem. Uh, uh, workers, as we've talked about over the years, is another big problem. And when you bring these issues up to Chinese stakeholders, they'll say, oh, no, 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 but that's not us. We're doing something in the nonprofit or in the development sector. But the idea that you're trying to then tell people to turn off their views of the Chinese that they pick up on social media or in mainstream media or talking to their friends, and somehow now in a public-private partnership development context, they're supposed to abandon all of that and just assume that everything's fine, to me, is, is that's a shortcoming. And that's one of the, I think, one of the challenges for the Chinese going forward for all of these different projects, that they're going to have to address the counterfeit issue, for example, if they want to be successful in these development projects. I agree. They, they certainly can't look like they're trying to avoid the issue. You know, I mean, I, I have sympathy for them in the sense that, you know, this isn't a problem that they, development, this development projects group, for example, that that's not a problem that they created, you know. And, for example, I think, you know, if, say, say they were working for USAID and they were busy with an American development project, you know, to making them then also for example, answer to some of the outrages that's happening in, you know, in, in race relations in the US, for example, or, you know, which does happen, you know, of course, uh, the United States, yeah, American projects do run into yeah, the same yeah, problem. Yeah, you know, kind of, so, so all of these foreign projects face a, a version of this problem, like kind of unfair as it is, you know, um, I think also, you know, I, I, I want African I want African communities to be more proactive, you know, in, 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 in terms of, of how they approach these projects, you know, to, to, to kind of step out of a, a, a kind of assumption that these are outsiders coming to try and either take something for the, from them or kind of just simply act on upon them in some kind of way, you know, kind of to, to, to step into a more proactive, more, um, you know, more dynamic kind of, rela you know, interaction with these projects. But I know that's a, that's a lot to ask, especially if one, like, you know, as, as happens in rural Africa, the, the communities feel disempowered anyway. They feel disempowered in relation to the metropole and to the, the federal government. Um, and then, you know, they also obviously feel disempowered in relation to these kind of, you know, kind of fancy people coming from overseas. So so that, that I think, is a, is a difficult thing to ask. But it is it would be great if it could it be achieved. Last summer, you were in Yokohama for the TCAD summit. That's the Japanese-Japan-Africa uh, summit that was happening. And there was a lot of talk of public-private partnerships. The Americans are also talking up public-private partnerships a lot more these days. And, and so are the British and the French as well. So it's very much a topical theme. 
And I guess I'm curious about your take on this because on the one hand, a G to G partnership, government to government relationship, uh, allows uh, a certain efficiency that public-private partnership, which has a lot more stakeholders, uh, is more complicated. So as she talked about, uh, you sit in a room, you've got people speaking four languages, they may come from different agencies, the number of people with different agendas goes up exponentially. And I think the Americans are running into this problem in Nairobi, where they're trying to build an expressway, and they're doing it on a public-private partnership model. The expressway has run into problems because the costs have inflated. Uh, what people tell me is the costs have inflated in part because of corruption. So you got more people in the room, more people that want to get paid. And in a G2G relationship, there's fewer people in the room and fewer people need to be paid. So things can get done more efficiently. So it's just, I'm interested to get your take on this whole fashionable talk about public-private partnerships and the difficulty of doing that in a place like Africa uh, in where in most African countries, corruption is a real problem and can slow a lot of these projects down. Yeah, that's a, re- that's a real issue. And I think, you know, corruption is, is an ever-present problem, but it, it kind of morphs according to the context. So there is a, cor- a corruption problem in government-to-government interactions and then a different kind of corruption problem in, in government-to-business-to-government in interactions. Um, I think what, what also is a problem is that you know the the it's not only that that there are different languages involved say portuguese chinese and so on with within these different actors they come from different kind of kind of ways of thinking about the world you know so a corporate executive has a very different way of seeing the world than a government uh, you know, uh, official, even if they are culturally and linguistically exactly the same. So, so you know, so there's there's also that problem on on top of it. The public-private partnership is is becoming increasingly popular, I think, because of a recognition that that there's a lot of money in the private sector that um, that is you know that 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 is looking for a home in the sense that you know kind of it it could be it could be fruitfully invested somewhere but also that governments increasingly have a, a much smaller part of that of that pie you know to 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 allocate um you know so so they're trying to kind of get these private sector actors on board in order to to also to leverage other other sources of capital um but then of course you are then in a different logic you're in a logic where where corporations are involved and where they need to to justify their involvement to their shareholders which means that there has to be profit has to be made in some kind of way and then you kind of segue out of a traditional development logic like like xingqing said you know kind of where, where farmers are used to to essentially having everything pre-delivered to them for free you know because that was how it worked you know that was the way that that it was delivered before because that was the, that it was calculated to maximize participation um, and to, to now dealing with a, a different logic that includes the need the need for the Chinese company to also be profitable in this project you know so that that I think makes stuff a, a lot harder um, do you foresee this kind of project taking off in Africa because keep in mind that you know in the that Africa one of the things that African development people are saying all the time now is that agriculture and agri-processing is the future of development in Africa um, so do you see this kind of agricultural project starting to to multiply across the African landscape it's hard to tell I'd like to say yes because this is the direction I think should things should go I think that the Chinese public funding in Africa is going to go down. So the idea of the private sector, like this company in Mozambique, getting more involved is very, very encouraging. 
Uh, it's a lot of risk, though, that has to be entailed. And you're asking a company like this rice company to take a huge amounts of risk in what she talked about in a staple crop, not in a cash crop. So on the, in the one hand, I think, yes, we might see that. But let's think about other sectors outside of agriculture where we may see more public-private partnerships. So certainly in the technology space, like we've seen with Star Times and the 10,000 Villages program, Star Times being a private company, nominally, and uh, getting a, uh, money from China Aid to put satellite dishes in 10,000 villages across Africa. Another example of a public-private partnership. I think one of the big takeaways is that for people who are looking at the Chinese in Africa, not to think that everything that they're doing there is purely a government-to-government, large state-owned enterprise-driven, massive infrastructure initiative. It's not. It's far more varied than that. And that's what I think that this project represents. Uh, I think the agricultural sector is tough. I'd like to see more. I'm not entirely sure that we're going to see more, but it is something that uh, that we'd like to to think about. This is going to be a topic that we come back to throughout the, I'd say, over the next year and a half. Uh, and we're going to hear from Xinqing again uh, over the next year and a half. And thanks in part to some the support of the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, who's underwriting and supporting us for coverage of health and agricultural issues. We're going to talk a lot about what's going on in these types of spaces to have a discussion about some of these pilot programs like what Qingqing was talking about in Mozambique. So we hope that you'll join us on this journey for the next year, a year and a half, uh, while we bring you stories from the field and also from thought leaders from around the world about trends in aid and development uh, related to the Chinese in Africa. So we'll, we'll bring more of that. Uh, that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Kobus and I will be back again next week with another episode. Uh, so until then, thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa project to share your thoughts on today's show. The guys are also on Twitter, where you can find Kobus at Stadinsky or Eric at eOlander. And be sure to sign up for the weekly China in Africa email newsletter by going to www.chinaafricaproject.com.